brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio on time, on target. This show is brought to you by Crate Club, a club for men by men of gear handpicked by special operations military veterans. Visit crateclub.us for an exclusive promotion for our listeners of 20% off any gearbox of your choice. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion live. So go to crateclub.us. Use the promo code SOFREP and get 20% off any gearbox. That's crateclub.us, coupon code SOFREP for 20% off any gearbox. Sign up now. Uh, now, I'm very excited for this episode, actually, because it's actually a topic that's fascinated me for many years, and I've watched uh, documentaries about red books on, and that's the Oklahoma City bombing, because our writer, Joseph Lefebvre, did an excellent interview that I actually just got finished reading with a former DEA, DEA agent, um, special agent Kevin Waters, who was there at Oklahoma City and recalls stuff that basically he was kind of told that never happened or there was no real story there. Yeah. he uh, Joe spent quite a while on this story and, and went down to Oklahoma and he interviewed uh, this former DEA agent. Um, he'll, I'm, he'll explain it all yeah, in yeah. depth, but... Um, you know, the guy saw somebody that he thinks may have been involved in the bombing and the prosecution, uh, either, either they didn't follow up on it or they just didn't include it in the prosecution because um, his account, this DEA agent's account, just didn't jive with all the other accounts. So it was a piece of evidence that they ostensibly set to the side. And as you said, um, we'll get into it during the interview, but this is not to be confused for those familiar with the topic, which I confused it for, with John Doe number two, because he says he he doesn't think right. this was John Doe right. number two. He thinks that was a separate guy. A lot of, a lot of people have written about John Doe number two. There's been conspiracy theories. There's been credible research. You were pointing some stuff out, Ian, about how it's probably somebody's faulty memory is yep. responsible for John. What, what, what we know is John Doe number two. Um, but this is, this is something completely different. This is a, 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 f- a new account that at least to my knowledge has not been previously published, yeah. um, of a mysterious person, um, nearby where the Oklahoma city bombing happened. Um, so anyway, yeah, Joe, Joe will tell us all about it in depth. Yeah. I'm excited for it. it the John Doe number two thing, it, it's just really interesting because this is the first time I've looked at it in a while. And it's funny how the account of who this guy was goes from he's like a German-born white supremacist to he's Jose Padilla, al-Qaeda terrorist, like the amount of conspiracy surrounding this guy. I, re- I remember way back in the day, like Alex Jones would talk about that. Uh, what, what's the guy's name? Nussenbaum? Nussberger? 
I'm not sure. The guy that got it said, but people said was John Doe. Oh, yeah, we were just looking at him. Yeah, the German guy. Yeah, and and Alex Jones said, yeah, he's like some sort of like neo-Nazi, but he's a Fed plant. The Fed sent him, and, and, you know, of course, our federal government bombed itself. It's a false flag. (laughs) I remember that stuff from Alex Jones, like, way back in the day. You'd find, like, those videos of him, like, ranting about it. Although, as I was saying to you, um, the Fed's posing as white supremacists to gain intel is not unheard of. Um, I mean, for one, the guy that that helped... and this is all connected, but Ruby Ridge, the the main guy involved, uh, Bundy. Uh, no, Weaver. Bundy was yeah, Randy, Randy Weaver. Weaver. Yeah, the guy. I mean, the guy who met him and told them to saw off shotguns and all that was a you know government. Yeah, uh, agent. It's or, the same with uh, the jihadists. Uh, the FBI, you know, has been accused of grooming people, like kids who are not really inclined. Young people are not inclined towards terrorism. And, you know, some people have said the FBI, what they do is they basically create terrorists so that they have someone to arrest and they'll like have their assets groom some 18, 19 year old kid for a period of years and then, you know, convince them like, yeah, go set off a bomb, go do this, go do that until they finally go and do it. And then they sweep in and arrest them and like, whoa, look, we arrested an Al Qaeda terrorist. (laughs) It's like, well, kind (laughs) of, kind of. Yeah, this is an interesting one, though, that you guys might want to look up that I, that I found fascinating was this, uh, I was telling you before, a white supremacist, alleged white supremacist radio host out of New Jersey uh, who apparently used to call Sean Hannity all the time, and then he kind of did his own internet radio show, uh, you know, talking about blacks destroying the community and stuff, Hal Turner, and it turned out Hal Turner was, were, in fact, working for the government, which uh, I think is something Alex Jones actually said, and it turned out to be true. So. Uh, I mean, I've come across some interesting characters um, once in a while. I remember, actually, uh, Jim West did like a little martial arts seminar that uh, I participated in. Was and it the one I was at, at Emmett Alunis? No, no. Okay. Uh, it was for a small, small private group, and it was really good. I mean, it's Jim. I mean, he's an incredible uh, instructor. Um, so we did our, uh, our, you know, day of training and, um, at the end we took a, a group photo and there's this guy who had been talking to Jim who claimed he had a military background and this, and then he did this and that. And like, they, they knew somebody in common from way back in the day. And, but Jim got kind of a weird feeling about the guy and honestly, so did I. And, um, at the end of the training, we, we took like a group photo and the next, and Jim emailed the photo to me like a couple of days later and I opened it up and I, and I look at the picture and I'm looking at it and like something jumps out right at me. I'm like, holy shit. So this guy, he, um, he was there with his son in the group photo. This guy had positioned himself. So his face is directly behind his son's head, like completely intentional. And that is not an accident. That is tradecraft. That is like something that a person is taught to do. Like, if, hey, if you're ever um, socially obligated to take a photograph, here are some things you can do to hide yourself. You know, you can turn in the other direction. You can put yourself behind someone else's head. Like, that's something you actually train an asset to do. And so when I saw that photograph, I was like, oh, fuck. I was like, yeah, this guy's a fed. Like, I, I bet you he got popped um, for either drugs or weapons and they flipped them and turned them. And I, I can't prove it. I'm, I'm speculating here. But when I saw that, I was like, Oh fuck. The, the only, uh, when, as you're telling me the story, the thing I'm wondering, what if, uh, w- would it be possible? He was like a stolen valor guy and he didn't want to get caught in his bullshit after saying he did all this stuff. 
Um, it, it could be. It's possible. I mean, maybe. But because then when you put a photo online, people go, "Go, oh, I know who this guy is." No, sure, not, sure. Yeah. Um, it still seemed it struck me as a little too convenient and, and to hide <laughs> yourself funny, like that, holding up his kid behind your head. Yeah. Uh, well, his kid was like a teenager, so he, he was just kind of like squatting a little bit. Oh, gotcha. Putting it, yeah, hiding. Because I, I was thinking it was like a young kid, and he's holding no, 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 no. Okay. It wasn't like a little baby like holding yeah, in front yeah. of himself. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm completely wrong, but when I saw that picture, I was like, oh, fuck. It's very suspicious. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. suspicious. All right, well, anyway, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting this, but that's a crazy story, man. Um, looking forward to getting over to Joe. Before we do, we got two emails here, two really good emails. Uh, sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com. This first one is from Dave. Ian and Jack, I've been listening to the podcast for about a year, and I love it. Thank you guys for the great interviews and thought-provoking sidebars. I'm catching up some episodes after getting back from some training. I'm an Army Reservist with an MI unit out of Queens. I just finished listening to episode 427. I'm a New Yorker through and through, and I love hearing about New Yorkers who are in the soft community. It's something you really never hear about. I also appreciate hearing from minorities within the soft community, being Puerto Rican and from the Bronx. The military isn't something we are exposed to, and to be quite frank, something many of us don't think we can do. Never ever would I, uh, never ever would I ever imagine being in the IC. Uh, my question for Jack is, in your opinion, how can the DOD do a better job of recruiting future soft intelligence professionals from New York and minorities? By the way, I'm a cop in White Plains, and if you guys have, uh, and I think you mean to say, and you guys have some fans in the department. Uh, if you guys find yourself in the area, let me know. First round's on me. Respectfully, Dave. Cool. Yeah, thanks for writing in, Dave. I uh, was just thinking about White Plains because I, you know, I grew up in the area, and I actually I saw this documentary on Voice of America talking about um, how shopping malls are dying all across America. I saw you post it. And it made me think about the Galleria Mall in White Plains, which I, I used to go to all the time when I was a kid with my parents. Or with my mom. It's fun. It, you know, it's funny for me to hear that just sidebar is, is where I live, there's a mall that's like getting shut down and reconstructed, but then there's Roosevelt Field Mall, which I feel like will never die because it's just like one of the biggest malls. It's famous. I like you go there on a weekend, it's packed still. Yeah. Some, I mean, some of them will shut down and some of them will continue because, like you said, like they're too, they're so big and they're, you know, it's like the only game in town, yeah, you know? Or like Mall of America. That'll never go away. Um, like in Westchester, uh, there's the, um, in White Plains, they built a second mall in like, I guess the late 1990s called the Westchester. Like, how pretentious is that? The Westchester. <laughs> and you go in there and it's like a museum to Louis Vuitton handbags. It's like a bunch of like high-end hoity-toity kind of like fashion stuff, like things that you should you can look at but you can't touch. Well, I grew up right by the Americana, which is the epitome of that. Uh, oh, really? Know, oh, yeah. If you ever listen to um, It's Still Rock and Roll to Me by Billy Joel, where he says, do you want to cruise the Miracle Mile? That's the Miracle Mile is the Americana, which is literally walking distance from the house I grew up. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, um, good question, uh, Dave. Thanks for writing in. I, I mean, if I got to play like uh, you know God for a day uh, or Userek Commander for a day, um, probably what I would think about doing is more community outreach, um, like um, for instance the Dare program. So you know the Dare program. I, I think we can say that it's failed to stop drug use. 
But what it did do is it introduced children to their police department, um, which was great. Um, I think that's a really positive aspect of that program is like you get to meet a police officer and you get to see who he is and, and he can tell you some cop stories and you, you can come to realize that this guy is a part of your community. Um, so that's a very positive thing about the D.A.R.E. program. And I think maybe the military, and I, I mean, the, the, you know, the liberals, they'll complain about this. They won't like it. But I, I mean, I, I think I, got, I have to think there's a role for the military to be able to go into schools um, in a similar way and not to indoctrinate kids or anything like that, but just to like inform them like, Hey, you know, we have a military with almost, you know, a million people in it. Um, there are all these different options and this is, this is what the military does. This is what it doesn't do. You know, just, uh, just sort of like a, an educational experience so that kids are aware of, you know, that we have soldiers and what they do. And, and that can have all kinds of great impacts from um, not just recruiting, but also that you have a better educated and informed electorate down the line that, you know, has some a little bit more knowledge about their military um, because it's one of those things that's like out of sight, out of mind. And if you've never met a soldier, if you don't have um, someone who served in your family, which is becoming, you know, increasingly rare, it's like, what, what is the statistic? Like 0.05% of Americans join the military. I've always heard around 1%. It's incredibly small today. Um, So, I mean, informing Americans about these things is is very important. But that would be my answer. I would look at setting up some kind of a program where not just like recruiters go into the school to do a recruiting drive, but when you take soldiers, like, you know, just it it could be special operations guys or it could be. Um, ideally I think it's better to be like a mix, you know, you have like one guy from the infantry, one guy from soft, one guy who's military intelligence, you know, one guy who, uh, is a, is a mechanic, you know, that kind of thing. And just go in and have like an educational experience with kids where like the soldiers come in every once in a while, um, and talk to them. And I think through that, you would do a much better job at recruiting period. Um, but to include minorities, um, you know, women, you know, it, the, the military is still kind of seen as a, a masculine profession. Um, why not kind of just tell kids that these doors are open to them if they want to go through? Yeah, that sounds like a smart idea to me. Um, I, I don't see what, why not. Also, uh, probably as you have more and more guys uh, writing books that, that aren't always white males, it, it's a way of, you know, Amber Smith writing a book, for example, it's yeah. a way of saying like, here, you, you don't have to be a man to do this. You don't have to be a white man <laughs> to do this. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the perception. It's not the reality, though. I mean, there are a lot of minorities in the military, and even contrary to some of the criticisms that are made of special operations, I mean, I think we are still you know, overwhelmingly white, but there's still a lot of minorities in, in special operations, and it kind of, honestly, it kind of pisses me off that people make it out like it's just white men, and it, it just isn't. It's just not true. I, I think this probably connects with the military. I remember reading about this in New York City in particular. They had a problem with um, less minorities in the fire department, and the mm-hmm. reason why, you know, it it wasn't necessarily because of, like, discrimination on testing and stuff like that. It was a lot of the time that, you know, this guy's father had a position at the fire department and it was like, hey, I'll oh, it's do a it. it's a legacy thing. Yeah. Or, you know, hey, I'll help you out with your son, you know, 
getting into the fire department, oh, like political yeah, yeah. favors type of thing. Yeah. And for example, when you hear of like Frumentarius, who's been on the show, whose father was a Navy SEAL, his grandfather was a Navy SEAL, there aren't really black or Hispanic families like that or Latino families like that. So I think probably as time goes on, you'll see more diversity. Yeah, I think so for sure. Um, and I, when I talk about diversity, I don't, I'm not one of these people that likes to talk about it or, or use it as a cheap buzzword, um, to make me feel good about myself or to try to sell people something. Uh, I think diversity is good in the military, um, in the sense that it brings in a diversity of thoughts and ideas, but also as I've talked about in the past, there are things that a woman can do in a military context that I can't do. Um, there are things that, you know, a five foot tall Mexican or a Mexican American can go places and do things that I can't do. I'm even uh, just thinking tunnels. I was not talking about fucking tunnels. It's I mean, true though. Jesus. There's probably spaces that a, that a six foot tall jack dude cannot get into. Well, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> I was thinking in a, in a much larger context that. Um, someone, a person of color can blend in in many different cultures that I can't blend into. Um, unless you want to infiltrate the IRA, I'm fucking worthless (laughs) and, (laughs) or a white supremacist rally. Uh, but even then, if you sent me to like to Ireland, the second I open my mouth, people are going to know I'm full of shit. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that a guy that looks like me, um, can't do. I, I mean, I can't go places and collect Intel, um, in an unassuming manner, the way I think a woman could. Um, so I, I think recruiting people from a diverse background brings a lot to a team. Um, and I think it just helps our, our capabilities, enhances our capabilities over the long haul. Yeah. All right. Next one here is from Cynthia. Um, and it's good because we've been talking so much about the Eddie Gallagher stuff. So Guys, awesome conversation with Rob O'Neill. I share his concern about the confinement of a U.S. elite warrior without due process. In the civilian world, there would be a holy shitstorm if that happened. What is the recourse or procedure for any operator that has serious concerns about leadership? Did the team uh, did the team seals exhaust those avenues before they went public with allegations against Gallagher of war crimes? Thank you, Cynthia. Well, I mean. People are going to get upset and dispute things, but I mean, has he been deprived of due process? No. Yeah. I mean, so I, I understand there, his family is understandably upset that this guy has been confined for like what, eight months or something like that. Like I, I, I get it. Like I understand why they're upset by that. Um, but he hasn't been deprived of his due process. It's just taken a long time to get to trial probably because there's um, allegedly there were attempts to cover up alleged crimes that adds more time into, you know, process, um, processing evidence and things like this. It takes a lot longer to go through everything. Um, so I'm sure that factors into it. I mean, in the civilian world, if you get arrested, um, of a, of an alleged violent crime, I mean, they're not necessarily going to bond you out. I mean, it depends on circumstances. And, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not necessarily the best person to answer that question. But, I mean, we see people confined in prison until their court date. Well, you know, that happens all the time when yeah. you're talking about violent, violent crime or, or alleged violent crime. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't really know that he's been deprived of his due process. No, and, and even just like different uh – 
different views in the court of public opinion isn't necessarily going to sway the way a trial goes. I mean, the one that sticks out to me was Jesse Ventura and Chris Kyle. And I, I think Jesse Ventura rightfully said, like, hey, this is this beloved Navy SEAL. I'm looked at as this, like, nut job, basically. And Jesse Ventura won his case, even though in the court of public opinion, um, Chris Kyle's is a more loved uh, American, I guess. Yeah. And there's, I mean, courts are about establishing facts. It's not about who's better liked. It's not like a high school popularity contest, or at least it shouldn't be. If it, if it becomes that, it's a, it's a perversion of justice. Um, and, and there's also when they do pick jurors and all that, I bet you there's a, I mean, I would assume there's a huge population who has no familiarity with this case whatsoever. So it's actually not like a high profile case where everybody already has their opinion swayed before they walk in the courtroom. Yeah. And when I hear about when they found jurors for like the OJ Simpson case, did, did anybody really walk in there without any bias of what actually happened? You know? I, I don't know uh, about the juror selection. Um, I know they try to find people who haven't been, you know, quote unquote contaminated, but yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fucked up situation any way you cut it. Um, I, I was reading in the Navy Times yesterday that the investigation in, into the Eddie Gallagher case has um, expanded to include members of SEAL Team 6 um, because I, what I took away from the article was that it was, be, it was alleged that Gallagher was contacting members of Dev Group um, to try to get them to help him retaliate against people who are making accusations against him. Um, and again, th- these are things that the, the, the prosecution has to investigate. The defense has to, you know, make their, their own investigations. The judge has to weigh in and see if the evidence is admissible. I mean, all this shit takes time. Um, and it's unfortunate. And yeah, like I said, I mean, I understand why, why his family is upset by this. I mean, from their perspective, you know, their dad is in prison. I mean, it's fucking horrible. Yeah. All right. Um, well, thanks for sending those emails in softrep.radio at softrep.com. And I'm excited to uh, bring Joseph on and get right into uh, some interesting stuff and some stuff you've never heard before, unless, of course, you've read this article um, about the Oklahoma City bombing. Joining us back on Softrep Radio, Joseph LaFave at LaFave Joseph on Twitter, news rep writer. And I actually just got done this morning reading your article, uh, which is an exclusive, a former DEA agent's chilling firsthand account of the Oklahoma City bombing, which is an interview with Special Agent Kevin Waters. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about this. As I kind of said to you, as Jack knows, this is a subject that's always fascinated me. Uh, I've read a lot about it, seen some documentaries on it. So let's get right into the uh, article itself. How did you meet Kevin and how did this all come about? Uh, Kevin was my domestic terrorism professor when I was oh, wow. um, a student at Florida State. So he uh, was like a really, he was a really cool professor and one I, I really got along with. And um, we had three units in the class. So the first unit was about eco terrorism and like the Animal Liberation Front and mm-hmm. Earth Liberation Front. The second one was about, um, I think they're. Christian fundamentalists or Christian separatists, they're kind of up in the northern part of the country, and uh, they kind of are aligned with the sovereign citizen movement, I believe. Kind of that whole anti-government group. And the third was about uh, specifically Timothy McVeigh and um, the Oklahoma City bombing, because he had, you know, he was assigned to the, you know, Alfred P. Barnard building in Oklahoma City, 
uh, when the bombing happened. It just kind of by coincidence, he wasn't at the office yet. So yeah, he told us that story when I was in class and it always had resonated with me because it was like, I mean, it was such an intense story. Uh, you know, not only him digging through the wreckage and trying to help find his friends, but you know, the years afterwards where he was riddled with guilt because he had seen McVeigh the night before. And, um, I actually hadn't talked to him in a long time. And when I came on staff at news rep, I reached out to him. I said, Hey, is this something you'd be willing to talk about? He said, absolutely. Um, you know, from his, from his point of view, you know, he said that talking about it helps him heal. And I think that healing is an ongoing process for him. So that's how I met Kevin. Yeah. It's a a really incredible story. Um, you know, I was even kind of skeptical when you first told me about it, because I know there had been rumors and and conspiracies and so on about so-called John Doe number two. And I thought that's what you were referencing at first, but this is actually a totally separate story from that. Yeah, so I was confused as, as well, actually, when I talked to him. You know, I said, oh, so you saw John Doe number two. He said, no, 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 there's a, there's a John Doe number three that's never been identified or talked about. And that's the guy he saw with McVeigh the night before. So, so it's kind of oh, – go ahead. Yeah, yeah, well, go ahead and walk us through this whole story. I mean, w- where was this guy? What did he see? Yeah, so Kevin was a uh, DEA special agent assigned to the Oklahoma City uh, field office out there. And, um, you know, during the time, during the early 90s, each of the special agents assigned to the field office had their own specialty. You know, one officer or one agent worked, you know, counter marijuana and um, went after the importers from Mexico. And one worked um, crack cocaine and one worked methamphetamines. And one, you know, they had agents there that also investigated prescription drugs. They're called diversion agents. Kevin's specialty or his assignment was crack cocaine. Oh, and he goody. had a partner, and they had a, a task force made up of uh, him and his partner, Jimmy, and some local officers from the Oklahoma City Police Department and the uh, the Sheriff's Department. So on April 19th, or the day before the bombing, so I think the bombing was the 19th, so the 18th, um, him and his partner made a giant crack cocaine buy from a, uh, a major dealer in the city and ended up arresting him. Uh, that was later, that was around in the late afternoon. Uh, they arrested him. They took him to the Oklahoma City Police Department jail. Um, then Kevin said, "Hey, I got to go to the office and uh, you know get a few things. You needed to get a camera. Needed to get a couple forms like for fingerprints and stuff like that." So he went up to the office and he looked at the wall. He looked at the clock and it was getting close to ten thirty. And his wife, who was a, a nurse at the time, worked night shift. She left the house at ten thirty. So he was like, "I got to get home to see her off." So he was kind of in a hurry. So he leaves his office, which is on the, uh, I think, the top floor of the Murrah building, and he walks down to the parking garage, which is at the bottom of the building, but street level. And it's actually still there today and still in use by the federal courthouse across the street. But he goes to the parking garage, and he was very specific on how the how the garage worked. He had to go up to it with this real thick, uh, almost like a credit card, and stick it in the slot and it would open real slowly. And he was, you know, it was, it was like 9.30 at night. There's no one around. And he's just kind of hanging out, waiting for the door to open by his car. And as the door gets three-quarters of the way up, he sees a vehicle out there. And, um, or he sees two vehicles out there. And he sees two guys sitting in one vehicle. But he said to me it was very clear that the man in the passenger seat that was in McVeigh's car, that, uh, you know, like that real beater well, car well, that he when, was arrested when, when with. When you say McVeigh's car, what, what, what do you mean? I mean, how, he didn't know it was McVeigh's car at the time. 
Yeah, so at the time, he just thought he was two guys. And um, he said to me that they were just eyeballing him. He said, I fuck him. They were eye fucking me. <laughs> and he, uh, you know, he stared back, and his first thought was, oh, my God, these are hitmen hired by the guy I just arrested. They're coming to kill me. So he kind of stares him down, and you know, he, he doesn't reach for his gun or anything, but he kind of motions towards his gun, and they kind of are locked in this staring contest. And he, you know, he doesn't, he's never seen these guys before, um, and they just stare at him. And he's like, you know, after a couple seconds of just that real intense eye contact, he gets in his car and he drives past them real slow. And they kind of make, con- you know, eye contact like in the cop movies, you know, where the cops drive by real slow and give you the side eye. He kind of gave him the side eye and he drove around the corner and he calls up his partner. And he says, hey, you're never going to believe this. And the partner says, what? He goes, there's two fucking hitmen out front of the Murrah building. And this partner says, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what a hitman looks like. You know, you're probably paranoid or something. And he says, yeah, you're right. And he, and he thinks about, you know, going over there and jamming him up and making a stop. But he's, you know, he's got that, that deadline to hit. He's got to be home. So he says, yeah, screw it. He, you know, reports. He, he got the license plate and he reported it to the Oklahoma City Police Department. Goes to the jail, takes a picture of, the, of their suspect, goes home. And because uh, he worked late that night. Um, in the morning, he kind of was like, I'm going to show up at the office a little bit in the morning. And he's taking a shower about 20 miles from Oklahoma City to the northwest. You know, and he feels the explosion. But he doesn't know what it is, obviously. And this was before cell phones and things like that. And, you know, he gets dressed, he heads into work, and he's driving to work, and his patrol car, his DEA car, has a radio. And that's when he gets to call, hey, there's been an explosion at the Murrah building. So he hits the lights, and he hauls ass into the city and by the time he got there which was about 20 or 30 minutes after the initial after the explosion um he tried to get to the building but the oklahoma city police department had it blocked off you know for evidence Mm -hmm. and and, uh he says he got out of the car he parked his car and he goes charging through the uh you know that do not cross line and some guy says hey you can't go there and he fires back i'm you know i'm dea and the guy who he fired back at was actually the chief of Oklahoma city police. So they kind of knew each other and he let him go and he goes to the Murrah building and he says, when he turned the corner to go up the street, he sees the back of the, or the front of the back of the building, which is, you know, if you've seen the picture, it's completely gone. Yes. The back. So was he on the the side that the, the detonation had occurred or not? Yeah. So he walks up the street facing the side where the detonation. Okay. Okay. So he sees that half the building's missing. Yeah, and he's just, oh, my God. You know, he said it looked like Beirut. There was cars overturned, fires, uh, burning bodies. And um, the Oklahoma City Fire Department had kind of just gotten there and were you know, starting search and rescue. And he looks up to where you know, he knows the office is, and it's all gone. Holy I mean, it's just shit. completely gone. And he thinks, oh, my, all my friends are dead. So he runs, runs down the street, and he turns the corner to the front of the building, and he, uh, you know, tries to make his way into the building, which the front of the building is covered with rubble. So he's kind of trying to dig his way through the rubble. And then finally he realizes he can't, he's not, that's not going to happen. So he turns around and he sees a guy he works with, one of the DEA agents. I think it was his partner. And his partner is standing by this flagpole, which is still there today, walking in circles, kind of muttering to himself. Uh, and Kevin said yeah, he was obviously in shock. So Kevin goes over there and... He tries to get him out of it, like, "Hey, man, you gotta, 
like we got to get it together we got a job to do and just then one of the other uh, dea i don't think she was a special agent i think she was like um, an admin or something like that she ran over she was at the courthouse and the three of them kind of regrouped and said all right we know the three of us are alive let's try to find the rest of our people and um you know this is just minutes from the blast and he said when he turned that corner before he even tried to make it into the building and that sidewalk is still there today there was about 20 to 25 bodies already laid out on the sidewalk um side by side and he says the first body that he saw was a blonde woman and he thought oh my god that's carol which is a woman he worked with so he leaned down and he you know moved her moved the body's face so he could see it he goes oh thank god it's not her you know, he keeps checking each body as he goes along for people he knew. And they had, um, you know, the bodies of the kids, which were obviously a lot smaller. Because I think, you know, that where McVeigh detonated the bomb, it was almost at right at where the daycare was in the Murrah building. So I think most, if not all, of the little kids that were at daycare that day in the Murrah, Murrah building died. Yeah. Um, so he regroups with two people. And uh, they ran into two more uh, admin from the DEA, one of them who was actually stuck in the elevator when the bomb happened. He was able to get out, but that's the only thing that saved him is that the he was still in the elevator when the bomb went off. It was like, you know, right before the doors opened is when it detonated. And if he had, you know, a couple seconds sooner, he would have been pulverized. And the cable didn't get cut. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been also horrible. Yeah. And a fear. So he, that guy finally managed to climb down, and Kevin said, you know, we got to get up to the office. And uh, the guy said, Kevin, you know, you know the office is gone. And um, Kevin said, you know, well, to the guys who went, you know, did they go quick? And he said, well, the families asked, yes, but between me and you, I heard the explosion. I heard them screaming on the other side, and that's when I heard the collapse. And um, so, which is really – intense and 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 while we're interviewing him we're at the site we're at the memorial um so he's able to point you know the parking garage is still there so he's able to point to the exact you know the exact location on the street where he saw those cars and he's able to point to the exact location you know where he saw his his first friend who was in shock and he's able to point to the exact location where the bodies were is, is this the very, first time joe that you've been to the murrah building yeah, it's my first time. Actually, my first time in Oklahoma, period. What, what was, how did you feel being there? I mean, because like, it's something we've read about our whole lives, pretty much. Yeah, so I was five when the bombing happened. So I had, um, you know, I had known about it. And I had, ever since I had taken uh, you know, Professor Waters' class, I'd be really interested in it. But this was my first time out to the Murrah building. And it was very somber. It was like a, you know, it was January. So all the grass is dead. And it was a Sunday. And it was you know, really quiet. I mean, it's like, eerily quiet you know especially because it's in the middle of oklahoma city uh you know but there's just a few people walking around and the memorial they where the building was they erected two large uh, stone arches and in between the arches is a real long reflection pool um and then on the side of the reflection pool they have little bronze chairs which i took a picture of and put in the article and each chair statue represents uh, one of the victims and what's really spooky is the for the children who died they made little smaller chairs so you can mm. visually see you know the portion of the total casualties that were children yeah which was a lot and for those who don't know 168 people dead nearly 700 people injured i think it's 680 something 
Um, you know, and it's the deadliest incident of domestic terrorism in U.S. history still to this day. Right. And, um, yeah, and, and, and he was, you know, Kevin was, you could tell he was getting pretty emotional, especially when it got to the parts where, um, you know, he found his friends and where the bodies were. And um, so after he grouped up these three people and then rendezvoused with two more DEA employees who had survived, they moved around to the blast side of the building again. And he said, this man came running up to him and, uh, the guy said, are you Kevin? And he said, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm Kevin. What's up? And the guy said, I'm Rona's husband. And Rona was a, I think she was a sheriff deputy who was on their crack cocaine task force. And, um, Kevin said, well, you know, good to meet you, man. And, uh, Rona had been in the office during the attack. She was obviously dead. And uh, her husband said to Kevin, you know, give it to me straight. Is is my wife alive? And Kevin said, no, I'm sorry. And uh, the guy said, well, you know, I appreciate the straight answer. And he was – everyone was in shock, you know. So there wasn't a ton of crying and, and oh, my God. It was just a state of shock. Yeah. And Kevin said, we're going to get out of here and regroup uh, down the street at the police department. Why don't you come with us? So Kevin kind of leads this caravan of people uh, to the police department where they – kind of spent the rest of the day uh, trying to account for all the staff they had, and they realized that they had lost uh, five employees. That's just insane, man. Yeah, it was heavy. Like, it was really, just doing the interview with them was really heavy. Um, you know, I was I was glad to do it, and, you know, like uh, like I asked him towards the, end of the, towards the end of the interview, I said, man, are you, like, this is intense. Are you okay talking about this? He said, yeah, it helps me, and a lot of the guys he said that survived it, you know, never talked about it. And they had a lot of issues. I mean, Kevin had a lot of issues as well, uh, trying to deal and reconcile with the fact that uh, he, in his mind could have stopped it. And, uh, I'll get to that. I guess I'll get to that in a minute. Well, you know, but, um, I, I also want to point out that, you know, I, I'm, I'm thankful to Kevin for talking to you about this and, um, you know, just, it just brings to mind, you know, just yesterday I was having this conversation because, Facebook made this big decision that like, Hey, we're going to ban any sort of like white nationalist content, or you won't be able to search for it and this kind of thing. So I understand the rationale behind it, but from my point of view, I want people to know what some scumbag like Tim McVeigh did. Like, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I don't want to hide it. Like you should know that that motherfucker killed a bunch of kids that he murdered a bunch of innocent people. And I don't want to whitewash any of it. You know what it reminds me of, Jack? Uh, Inglorious Bastards. When he asked him, if I let you go, are you going to take this uniform yeah. off? And he says, yeah. oh, I'll burn it. He goes, yeah, that's what I was afraid of. <laughs> yep. So it's it's almost good, you know, that we're able that you know, if we allow these people to, to share, you know, white nationalist stuff and swastikas and shit, at least we know, you know, at least we know who they are. Yeah. Because like, I think like you pointed out, you're just going to drive it underground. Yeah, because you you drive them off the platform. The next place they're going to go is going to be encrypted, more than likely. I mean, they're going to get a little bit wiser to things, and uh, it makes it harder and harder to track them and what they're doing. Because, I mean, it's great and all like, okay, yeah, we shut, we, uh, you know, we deplatformed these idiots off of, you know, Facebook or Twitter or whatever. 
But now it's like when you shut down uh, Backpage and Craigslist. I was thinking the same thing. Like, now, I mean, human trafficking in that case is not going away. I mean, neo-Nazism is not going away. It's just going to go somewhere else, and we don't know where that somewhere else is. Yeah. That's the problem. And it's def- definitely tougher to track things on the dark web than right. in a public place like Facebook. So, I mean, it, 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 okay, you know, you made yourself feel good that you kicked them off Facebook. That's great. But, you know, what would make me feel even better is if we knew where they were at and there was an FBI agent looking over their shoulder every step of the way. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if on Facebook part on Facebook's part if it's just they're going for the PR value I think or it's so. really just hubris that they think, oh, if we deplatform these people from Facebook, they'll cease to exist. No, no. I, I think it's purely uh PR that that it's become such an issue that they had to make a little response and you know everyone will you know will clap their hands and say, Oh, how progressive, that's great. Um, but I, I still think, um, you know, well, and we'll get back into this cause I, I do, you know, there's crazy things in this article, but, um, I do think, uh, Mark Zuckerberg in particular feels some guilt over the election of Donald Trump and he feels like his platform in some way helped that. And Mark Zuckerberg is definitely not a guy who voted for Trump. Yeah. But the, the uh, it's like, we had this conversation before with like deplatforming people like Alex Jones. It's like they there's no consistency. It's just someone who gets big enough and comes into the public eye, then they make a decision because it's reached that level. So, I, I mean, it's purely a PR move. It's not a consistent, like, no conspiracy theorists on our platform. It's like that guy got too much attention, so we're, we're taking him down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we do know as a fact that Russia bought ads for just uh, not just things about the election of Donald Trump. They also were buying things in regards to Black Lives Matter, and th- we know this. Yeah, just yeah. Just to quote right. Discord. Yeah. And that wouldn't have happened without the platform. So I do think there's some internal guilt in that I think there may be um but any, so, anyway so, let's get let's get back to kevin's story we're, we're getting a little off yeah track. no for sure and uh, actually from where you were going joe was like uh-huh. in the article he talks about on on some level being suicidal for surviving what he did and feeling like he could have prevented what happened yeah so the day goes so you know pick it back up at the police station the day goes by um, McVeigh gets arrested later that day in an unrelated traffic stop north of Oklahoma <laughs> City. Because he, he didn't have his license plate on, right? But yeah, didn't have his license plate <laughs> on, which is, um, you know, that's kind of a key point in Kevin's story that I question because Kevin said that it was the same car that he was arrested in that he saw the night before. And when Kevin saw it, he had a license plate because he wrote down the license plate number. Hmm. So at some point, he must have taken the plate off. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so McVeigh gets arrested, uh, you know, a couple of days later, they, they connect him to the bombing and his face is all over, um, TV, but Kevin doesn't you know, connect the two, you know, at, at this point, he's not thinking about the two thugs he saw the night before he's thinking about the incident, you know, and I think, you know, for a lot of people and, and you know, myself, when I look at some of the different things and calls I've been to, uh, as an EMT, you know, I don't really remember, you know, exactly what I was doing right before the call, but I remember very uh, viscerally what I was doing, you know, when I got there and then what happened afterwards. So I, you know, it it makes sense that Kevin didn't connect the two at the time. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until a month later or so when the FBI, uh, when an FBI investigator finally made the rounds down to the DEA office, which had now moved, uh, down the street past the Murrah building in the social security office. Um, and the FBI agents interviewing all the survivors and Kevin goes last. And it's, you could tell uh, Kevin said that he could tell the FBI agent was just kind of going through the motions and they weren't expecting to find any new information. Right. 
And uh, one of the questions was, had you ever seen McVeigh uh, before? And he's got a picture of him. And Kevin goes, no. And he kind of pauses and goes, oh, well, wait, yeah, I, I saw that guy the night before. And he said you could see the agent's eyes, like, light up. And, um, you know, he calls Jimmy and he's like, hey, you remember when I said, you know, about the hitman? And he goes, yeah, I remember that phone call. He says, that was McVeigh. And he goes, no way. And he goes, look, this is the guy I saw. And um, so the FBI agent starts, you know, vigorously taking notes and takes a statement. But uh, it ended up what Kevin was told later on that that information that he provided would have hurt the government's case against uh, McVeigh and ultimately Terry Nichols. Um, because it places a third co-conspirator, um, or fourth, depending on how you look at it, uh, but it places another co-conspirator in the mix that isn't accounted for. So the government ultimately told Kevin, um, you know, we're not going to uh, pursue this lead because it doesn't help our case. It doesn't. I think I think his words were, "It doesn't fit our the story we're trying to tell." Yeah, the um, narrative. So once Kevin connects the dots. You know, oh my God! You know, if I would have spent a little bit more time that night, or investigated a little bit further, or not, you know, had to rush home, maybe I could have prevented it. And it's a big maybe. And I don't, um, you know, from an outsider's perspective, you know, I don't think there's any way he could have known. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm sure, and and he does, you know, he feels, you know, hor- he feels horrible, especially because all his friends died, and he kind of just spirals spirals down you know he he takes uh takes up alcoholism and uh like he told me you know and asked him you know what was it like afterwards he said it was horrible uh you know he would come home from work every day and put the you know like he said he he said he'd put the gun to his head and think about killing himself but then he'd hear his kids crying or, or talking in the next room and he wouldn't want them to hear the shots and find his body and that um well, this was the only thing that prevented them, but he he said he was you know definitely an alcoholic. Um, but eventually, he he after a th- three or four years of just straight alcohol abuse, um, you know he decided to leave uh, the DEA. Um, he got sober and he took a position, or he w- actually he went back for his master's at Florida State University. Um, and then ultimately, when he finished uh, his programs there, he was brought on uh, faculty. So that's where I met him, um, probably six years after he had first left the DEA and um, started teaching at Florida State. I am glad there's like a positive, uh, you know, somewhat positive end to this story. Obviously, you can never undo what's been done and his friends dying. But the fact that he continues to live and and tell his story and and find a new career is great. Uh, The thing I wanted to get into, though, is there's, you know, I, I do, of course, believe that Kevin is telling what he accounts for as the truth. But the interesting thing is that there's been so many crazy John Doe number two stories, as we all know. I was looking some of this up before we did the show, you know, connecting him with terrorist Jose Padilla. And then in the recent Netflix documentary that just came out a couple of years ago called Oklahoma City, I just watched, you know, they found a guy who I believe is wearing a Panthers hat uh, that they connected with John Doe number two. And it turned out he went to the same tire store Tim McVeigh was at maybe the day before or the day after. Uh, So they believe it could have been foggy memory. And then I pulled up these quotes right here, which kind of cement at least, you know, how Tim McVeigh felt about those that connected another person to the crime. So at one point before he was executed, he said, you can't handle the truth because the truth is I blew up the Murrah building. And isn't it kind of scary that one man could wreak this kind of hell? And then on the morning of his execution, 
he said in a written in a written statement for those diehard conspiracy theorists who will refuse to believe this i turn the tables and say show me where i needed anyone else financing logistics specialized tech skills brain power strategy show me where i needed a dark mysterious mr x so he up until the day of his death and he was when he was executed by the state um, stood by that he acted alone and you know that Terry Nichols did very little the you know danger of course is that it's like uh, 9-11 and these uh, these conspiracy theories about a controlled demolition or the um, the conspiracy theories about the extortion 17 crash that there was something right there I mean it's like we have this um, this need for there to be something more behind it that it can't be a, a seemingly random um, event, or or even if it was planned, it, it can't just be a bunch of uh, uneducated Arabs hijacking an airplane and flying it into a building. It can't be just some goat herder in Afghanistan with an RPG launcher that shoots down a, a helicopter filled with our most elite troops. Uh, a one in a million shot. Right, right. Like those things can't happen, right? Because in the well, movies, at- it's all this. It's it's such a, a heroic narrative. You know, the hero goes down in a hail of gunfire. Well, look at World War One. I. I mean, I think Dan Carlin touched on a, a similar uh, vein when he talked about, you know, Gabrielle Princep, you know, take shooting the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Mm-hmm. How that? I mean, he's just a one guy, and he kicked off, you know, one of the most horrific wars in human history. Right. So I, I think, and I think you guys are right that you know, I, it, I guess it brings us comfort, and I think I'm probably. You know, speak. I'm think I'm ta- saying verbatim what Dan Carlin says, but I think it brings us comfort to think that one person can't influence world events like a McVeigh did or a Bin Laden or a Princip did. You know, it makes us feel better if we, we think there's some, uh, you know, cabal or you know, order that a, that a rather insignificant person like Timothy McVeigh can't just snap his fingers and snuff out the lives of you know what, what was it a hundred and eighty. Uh, 160 people? 168. Yeah. 168 people? Yeah. So even that number is debatable because one of the women in the building was pregnant at the time. Oh, wow. Can I just go on record to say Timothy McVeigh is a a douche? (laughs) (laughs) Like, all this, all that bullshit where, like, oh, the mysterious Mr. Mr. X, like, God, what a douche. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to bring it up, though, just because he... Stood no, by, no, it's you know, and but I, just stood by the fact that it was him. He acted alone, and and you know, for those who connect Terry Nichols, Terry, Terry Nichols kind of helped him construct some stuff, and then he basically bailed at some point. And then there was another guy involved who I've uh, done some research on, you know, just after watching these documentaries. And the the other guy involved is actually on witness protection program, so he's somewhere in the United States under a different alias. And how was he involved? You know what? I'm going to look this up as we're recording here. Um, so if he's in witness protection, he, he flipped and testified during the trial. I, I take yeah. it. Yeah. Oh. And there's been one of the one of the things about John Doe number two was that um, you know whether it was uh, um, who was the guy that I mentioned in the article, uh, the German guy. Yes. Strassmeyer. Mm-hmm. You know whether Strassmeyer. Or, um, you know, the guy that Ian mentioned, you know, the thing kind of about it is he was always, they always said he was dark or tan complexion, like olive skin. And, uh, Kevin told me that the guy he saw that night, he described him as, as having, uh, you know, dark complexion. 
And so that was kind of spooky. Just, just to unpack that a little bit more, I, I mean, what in in detail, what was it that Kevin described seeing? Because you said in retrospect, he identified that as Tim McVeigh's car, right? Right. So there was two vehicles parked um, on on the side of the street, you know, like street parking, uh, back to back or front to back, you know, right behind each other. Um, the first vehicle, I think it was a black, um, kind of more modern for 1995 car and then the second car behind it he described it as a piece of shit beater mm-hmm. so just um, by the way just to go back to what i'm saying here um just because i'm looking this up and i didn't have the name offhand so it's michael and Lori fortier michael and Lori fortier were considered accomplices for their uh foreknowledge of the planning of the bombing in addition to michael assisting mcveigh and scouting the federal building Lori had helped McVeigh laminate a fake driver's license, which was later used to rent the rider truck. Fortier, yeah, Fortier, Fortier, sorry, agreed to testify against McVeigh and Nichols in exchange for a reduced sentence and immunity for his wife. He was sentenced on May 26, 1998, to 12 years in prison and fined $75,000 for failing to warn authorities about the attack. Well, if Fortier was helping McVeigh scout the building, I mean, could he be John Doe number three? Absolutely. So I, but I, I would think, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm saying Waters, Kevin. I would think Kevin, uh, you know, would know enough about you know the subject to know if it was you know. I, I'm sure he knows the name Michael Fortier. If we do, you know, I, I don't know. He, what, what do you think, Joe? He knew Fortier and he knew Strassmeyer because I brought up Strassmeyer uh, to him when in the interview, and he said that he, the man that he saw next to McVeigh the night before the bombing, he's never seen before. So he's saying he, he, it's not either of those guys that he saw. Right. So that's why he calls him. That's why I say, oh, you were there with John Doe number two. And he says, no, no, no. It's not John Doe number two. It's someone that has yet to be identified because there's several theories about who John Doe number two is. Um, there are no theories about number three, you know, yeah. uh, number three. Um, yeah. But he, you know, not only did he, you know, witness it and everything, he also taught it, um, you know, in the academic setting at Florida state in the department of criminology. So he is well-versed in, you know, all the players, um, you know, helping McVeigh, everything about Elohim city, um, kind of that whole white nationalist, uh, you know, organization that, you know, I, I, I hesitate to call it an organization, but I guess that movement, yeah. um, that McVeigh was part of, but, you know, going back to, you know, Facebook and the censoring, when I was taking Kevin's class, he, uh, it was required reading for his class was the Turner diaries, yeah. which, um, yeah. if you're not familiar with the Turner diaries, if the listeners aren't familiar with the Turner diaries, it's a, uh, it's a novel, I quote unquote novel, um, written by a leader in the white supremacist movement. And in the book, it talks oh, yeah, about William how Luther Pierce, what William Luther Pierce is the guy yeah. who wrote it. And he has, I think he uses a pen name for that book. Yeah, he does. But, uh, you know, in the book, it starts out with um, the government comes to confiscate everyone's guns and these group of white nationalists or white supremacists, um, they form this organization called The Order and they kind of fight the government. And it's this big racial civil war where the army becomes segregated and fights itself. And in the end, the main character is tasked with blowing up uh, a federal building using a truck bomb, very similar to what mm-hmm. McVeigh did. So there's been a lot of talk about this is you know this book was the inspiration a catalyst. 
but Amazon still carries the Turner Diaries. And I think from an academic and a, and a criminologist point of view, and I'm not a criminal, I mean, I have a degree in criminology, but I don't consider myself, you know, a quote unquote criminologist. But from my point of view, you know, being able to read that novel uncensored cover to cover was helpful for me to maybe understand, you know, the, the thought process of McVeigh. So it's, Good that Amazon still stocks and sells books like this because, you know, it helps. You know, not only does it, not only can terrorists read it, but also people who study terrorists can read it and, and understand their ideology a little bit more. Yeah. If, if I could tell you guys something interesting, I, I actually did buy the Turner Diaries off Amazon. And, you know, uh-huh. you could buy from third party sellers because I've always, like I said, been interested in this topic. So I bought it of some third party from seller. purity of the what race Pre- nation, <laughs> pretty much because within the book, within the book was a pamphlet for this like white oh. supremacist bookstore that I bought it from. Jesus and then I started Christ. thinking to myself, I'm like, fuck, I'm probably on some government watch list right now just because I've always wanted to read this book. And then I was I, I felt like an asshole because I'm like, I'm supporting these idiots, you know, just because I wanted to read this. I. Ian Scotto, is that a Jewish name, boy? <laughs> the, na- the name is certainly not Jewish, but uh, I'm waiting for the conspiracy theorist to to put Ian as John Doe number three. <laughs> no, but but for real, it, it's uh, <laughs> so uh, it is kind of crazy though. Yeah, with these third party sellers, because it does make I'll, me think like I don't know, man. Some just cause I, like I don't think anything is wrong if you want to read Mein Kampf, if you want to read I the have, Turner uh, Diaries. I, I have at this point consumed far more white nationalist media uh, than uh than is healthy for a person <laughs> it, it starts to fuck with your head after a while honestly there's a book out there called a uh, siege um it's actually a compilation uh written by a prominent neo-nazi that one's kind of interesting to understand that movement um also uh, in the in the same uh genre as the turner diaries there's a couple books written by a, a former navy seal uh his name's matthew bracken and he wrote a bunch of books that are, are very much the same theme like the government orchestrates a false flag attack in order to justify gun confiscation is, which is the race which kicks involved? oh yes because the, i think the second book in the series i found it well uh, this is actually while i was in the army and when i was on cq or, or staff duty. I think it was staff duty up at group headquarters, actually. And there's a copy of it. I think the book is called Enemies, Foreign and Domestic or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I read just like the, the pro, prologue of the, of the book. And it's people sitting around a campfire, a bunch of white people sitting around a campfire out in the wilderness in the aftermath of America's second civil war. And they're just talking at each other about all the things that transpired. And there's like roving bands of blacks patrolling America, raping women. And it's, it's like, I, I couldn't make it patch past like page, page seven. I was like, this is just like disgusting. Um, but yeah, that stuff does serve as a as an inspiration for uh, for some of these people. But when I was living in New Orleans, um, you know, obviously it's very, I guess, non segregated is not the right word, but it's very. Uh, what would you say? It's like a melting pot. You know, New Orleans is definitely a true melting pot. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I woke up one morning. It was like a Saturday morning. No, I was a Friday morning because I had Fridays off, and uh, there was a pamphlet on my door for some white nationalist thing. I didn't, I didn't see who put it there, but I, you know, I was like, oh, fuck this. You know, I don't want this in my neighborhood. It, it reminded me of the South Park thing where all the redneck guys get mad. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, 
and they say we don't take kindly to people who are intolerant of others' cultural differences out there. And like that's, <laughs> you know, if 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 we I'm if I had caught for. the guys who was putting it, you know, putting it on everyone's doorstep, that would have been me. Oh, yeah. Dude, it's it's just so crazy. You know what else I was going to say? I mean, just back to something I was saying before with the Michael Fortier thing, since I was reminded of it. Isn't the witness protection program kind of crazy? Like, to think that that guy's still out there, like, possibly going to a Home Depot and, like, he's the guy helping you out or something. Because I'm sure it's just, like, a normal guy working a regular job now, and no one knows he had some right. sort of involvement in the Oklahoma City. I've, uh... I've talked to I've come across witness protection stuff a couple of times. And actually one guy who is out of it now, he believes that I talked to him a little bit. His um, he believes his family was the first they were the first African-Americans put into the uh, witness protection program. And it hmm. was because of um, not 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 so much. Um, it, it was like the Islam. It was a conflict between um, the the um, Islam nation and another black Islamist group. Um, shit, it, it, the name escapes me right now. But it was fucking vicious, man. And and his family was not directly involved, but like it was like one group went and like murdered the entire family of the other group, including like seven kids, like drowned an infant in the fucking sink, like fucked up stuff. And and I, I guess his dad had some periphery connection to um, some of the people involved in the crime. So he, and he served as like a, um, a witness or he offered some testimony or something. But anyway, I'm sorry, I, I don't have all this information in front of me right now. We can go and revisit it. Um, I actually wrote about this in my Blue Light article because what happened was in response to this murder, these, these guys went and, and um, took hostage a couple federal buildings in Washington, D.C. in the 1970s. And the United States government had no um, hostage rescue capability, had no idea how to deal with this problem. There were no such things like SWAT teams. So what did the government do? They called down the special forces at Fort Bragg. <laughs> like you put together a special team to come and deal with this. And so at Fort Bragg, they started rehearsing um, to go and do a, a hostage rescue in Washington, D.C., um, and putting together the basics of a plan. And uh, it would have been messy if it ever got executed, but the negotiators did their thing and, and the hostages were released. Um, but anyway, the guy whose family was put into witness protection, he wrote a book. And I kind of used that book to help me write this article about all this happened and, and the U.S. Special Forces involvement in it. Um, but, yeah, witness protection is an interesting thing in, in that sense. I mean, there are people involved in, like, gnarly shit, and they've just been replaced elsewhere. Yeah. Do they, they get, like, a backstory or something? I mean, or they just kind of drop you so. off? No, no. They, they give you, like, a whole story um, uh, about who you are and, you know, different identity and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the, yeah. It is, it is backstopped to some extent. I read a book about – it was a guy. He was a – he turned – he was – like a, he was a drug dealer. I think it was California and he was caught and, uh, he went undercover for the feds, um, as a witness in a motorcycle gang. And then after they brought the gang down and they figured out it was him, he was putting witness protection and moved across the country. Oh, you're talking um, about the book, uh, under and alone. No, no, that one's by Billy queen. That was badass. This one's called, uh, outlaws, vagos and, um, hell's angels or something. Oh, okay. The guy was like on the history channel. No, but this guy was not a federal agent. This guy was a criminal who just like made a deal. Oh no shit. <laughs> with the ATF or I think it was ATF or DEA to go undercover, 
does his assignment. You know, in return, he doesn't get charged with the drug dealing. He's put in witness protection, gets moved over to uh, Virginia, you know, from California. And while he's in Virginia, he is kind of like freelancing for different police departments and organization. Like he goes to Canada and says, hey, I can try to infiltrate the Hells Angels. And the RCMP is like, no, dude, like, <laughs> no. And he ends up. Um, coming back down to Virginia and like starting a chapter of a motorcycle gang and recruiting guys into the gang. Um, but he's still working as a, as a witness for the, for the feds. So he kind of made a living off of being an undercover, not a law enforcement officer, but like an undercover source in these motorcycle gangs. Right. Jeez. Interesting. Yeah, it was pretty heavy. That stuff's heavy. Like, like I, re- I was reading Under and Alone. I mean, the stuff that guy had to go through, and, and you could really sense in that book, you know, how he was kind of torn. You know, yeah. I think living the part eventually takes a toll on your psyche. And I, I think he, he said, too, that, like, it started to fuck with his head, too, and, like, all the racist bullshit and stuff like that. It, like, it really impacted him. Yeah. And, and then, on the other hand, he also talks about, like, going to, like, you know, um... Uh, like back to school night for his kids and people are looking at him like he's a fucking scumbag biker meth dealer because that's what he looks like. Right. He's, yeah. He had the long hair and he's tattooed. Yeah. He can't be like, Hey man, like I'm really, a, I'm really a cop. Yeah. Like I'm not a piece <laughs> of shit. Well, this has been fascinating, man. I know that you have some other stuff that you're working on that we could probably talk about another time. Uh, you've been following the cruise ship stuff, which includes the latest 20 injured in cruise ship disaster of the Norwegian coast. Uh, and then also covering Venezuela, rebel groups seize control along the border in Venezuela. We could probably cover that another time because I feel like we've covered yeah. a lot here. Um, but I would say for people who are really interested in the subject, I would especially recommend reading the book uh, American Terrorist, which is American Terrorist Tim, uh, Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing because it goes into his roots in the army, you know, and, and then to doing what he did, uh, basically speaking with guys in different white supremacist groups, also being outraged by what happened at Ruby Ridge, what happened at Waco, and, and basically what led Tim McVeigh to do what he did. Um, and then there's that Oklahoma City documentary on Netflix, which um, was, like I said, it was Mark Potok who was involved in Southern Poverty Law Center, but I, I thought it was pretty... Uh, down the line, they do talk about the John Doe number two stuff and kind of shoot it down. And I think they do a good job of it, to be honest. Um, and then there was I was looking this up on YouTube before we started recording, because I remember watching it. There's a document it's like a low budget documentary called Oklahoma City. What really happened? And if you Google it, you could find that YouTube has it. But like the quality kind of sucks. The audio craps out. So if I can, I'll um, I'll link to it on the article on softrep.com just if you want to see it. Uh, and that's all about the conspiracy of John Doe number two and people who believe that there was a John Doe number two. So I think it's cool to watch all of that because you'll get a good yeah. um, idea from different angles. You'll have one that's very conspiratorial and one that's a lot more um, the official story. And you can believe what you want to believe. And, uh, I mean, it might be interesting, actually, to get uh, Kevin Waters maybe on the show at some point. And he seems like a great guy. Yeah, it, yeah, he's a character. Just one other thing that I want to mention, too, since we're, we were on about McVeigh. I mean, I don't think we got into it last time, did we, about how McVeigh went to Special Forces selection and assessment. No, he was right, like after, briefly, he, right yeah. after he came back from, from the, the Gulf, Gulf War. War. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he washed out after a couple of days, so... 
he, he I think he voluntarily withdrew from the course, so he yeah. probably couldn't hack it. Um, but then the, his whole motivation, I mean, I think you were talking about, Ian, I don't, I don't know what you came across, Joe, McVeigh's motivation for the, te- the attack, why he became you know, anti-government was because of what he saw in the Gulf War. Yeah, he he said that when he was out there, I, I think he he took. They talk about this in the Oklahoma City documentary. There was one really long shot that he took, all right, and and he took out someone while he was um, deployed, and he did not feel good about it, like that in particular. And he felt like these people are defenseless. And he and a younger McVeigh looked at America as like the good forces of the world, and he started to see America as the bullies. He's like these people are defenseless. And it was a lot of people who were in that conflict say that it was like, you know, what's the term, like a chicken shooter? Yeah, a turkey shoot. I mean, well, even, uh, you know, when we had Mark Giaconia on, and this was the second Gulf War, this is a 2003 war, um, and he was talking about the airstrikes. And and you remember when we interviewed him, he's like, you know, I just felt sick to my stomach at a certain point because we were just bombing the shit out of people who couldn't defend themselves at all. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all comparing Mark to fucking Tim McVeigh. Of course not. To totally <laughs> different people and reach different conclusions. Um, but, you know, Mark just talked about that, how it, it was a very much a one-sided fight. And he, he, and he didn't feel good about it either. It, it made him, um, made him he, had, he had some reservations, I think, after the fact. Yeah. I, I mean, probably, I'm, sorry, you know, it, in a weird, sick way, it's probably healthy to have that that reaction yeah to, yeah to war uh, you know, I, I know for myself working uh, ems you know i i had to and I, working ems and, and going to war or not i'm not even comparing the two i mean i you know people ask me about ems all the time and they say oh I'm, you know that's like war i'm like no no it's not you know i get to go home every night um but i remember right before i left the job you know, uh, you would see sick things and you just wouldn't have any reaction. And I kind of was to the point where like, it kind of scared me that I was like, you know, like you just, you just saw some guy die, like right next to his wife at four o'clock in the morning. And now you're going home to play video games and eat breakfast. And that's, you know, that's not right. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, you get numb to it after a while. Yeah. That's not like, it's not a great feeling, you know? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I understand where you guys are coming from, although I've never experienced anything similar. What I was going to say is, I mean, it, it's not a popular topic to discuss, but like when you do talk, look at Tim McVeigh's background, it's a fair question of had Tim McVeigh never joined the military, would he have become the person that he did and, and have done what he did? I mean, it, it all kind of sparked from there about his distrust of american government and then he went down a really dark path it's hard to say man and i mean there's choices involved people make decisions and also i mean i've also seen people who go from being relatively normal people i know you've seen it too i mean you know who go down that like conspiracy theory road and and end up believing like all kinds of crazy shit i mean flat earth Dude, I've known, I knew a guy who was a, he was a, he's a minority himself and he, he was a totally normal guy. And then the next thing I, I see him popping up on my Facebook, like posting all this pro Waffen SS bullshit. I'm like, what the fuck happened to you? Was he like Clayton Bigsby, the, uh, the blind <laughs> <Yeah>. white supremacist? <laughs> what is it you have or against black people? How much time have you got? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, with with McVeigh, I mean, I think 
you know, maybe going to war played a part, but I mean, I, I just think he was, had a, an odd upbringing and he was yeah. just an odd dude and he was real susceptible to, yeah. to being radical. It, it's a, it's a number of things coming together. You know, I mean, a lot of people shipped off to the Gulf war, you know, and, and, you know, just like I brought up before, Mark Giaconia went to the war in Iraq, saw some of the same things, at least, you know, as far as the, the, the uh, massive amounts of killing, but still went to a very different place in life. Um, so, I mean, there's something about your personal psychology um, and just your own manner of thinking that, that plays into that so much. And, and that's hard to quantify, you know. And I think it's the way people cope. I mean, I right after I left the ambulance service, I mean, we lost a lot of medics um, for drugs. I mean, they just, it was like one after the other, keep getting arrested, uh, you know, for doing drugs. And it was kind of like, it's horrible what you see and everything, but it's not an excuse. And, I mean, everyone, like you said, Jack, everyone's got choices, um, you know, with how they decide to cope with things. I mean, like Kevin said, himself i mean he turned to substance abuse at mm-hmm. first and was eventually able to to see the light but um you know it's one thing i wanted to mention about the article before i go is um while kevin was teaching at florida state he was recalled uh, to oklahoma city to testify um in the terry nichols trial which was a state was a state of oklahoma trial and he got up on the stand and he told the story about um you know hit the night before the bombing and um, the federal government decided, you know, they did. I don't, I don't, I don't know what it was, but they didn't use his testimony. But um, you know, he said it was it was hard because they kind of blew him off. But one of the victims, one of the one of the the father of one of the children who died came up to him and thanked him for telling a story. Wow. Um, but you know, with with conspiracy, I mean, did did they not use his testimony because there's some bigger plan or did it really just not fit into their narrative yeah i think it just didn't it just didn't fit the prosecution's case and i don't think it's anything nefarious and and yet in the the feds of course like it's tim mcveigh he just killed 168 people like they want a slam dunk right you know right and they want nichols too and it it was it was the nichols case they did that yeah they don't because it was a state trial you know it had different implications and i just think to them losing was not an option right Um, right so I don't think it's like some nefarious – and I think you know probably a lot of conspiracy theories are easily explained um, you know, through that lens. It's not some cabal. It's like, hey, we got to get this done, and you know, we have to leave certain parts out to get what we need done. But um, anyway, after the trial, though, uh, you know, Kevin, you know, his redemption story was he wrote a letter to uh, Terry Nichols, who was imprisoned. Um, he That's was found right. guilty and, and sentenced to life in prison. And he wrote a letter to Nichols saying who he was and who his friends were and that he forgave him. And Nichols actually wrote him back and said that, you know, your letter to me uh, helped me get right with God. And Kevin said, you know, I think in some ways corresponding with Nichols helped him get right as well. So, Well, good for him, man. I mean, honestly. Yeah, it's an it's an incredible story. Yeah. It's not you know it's not my story. I'm just lucky to tell it. It's Kevin's story, and, and like I said, you know, it, I'm very fortunate that he uh, was willing to talk to me about it. Um, I think it's probably one of the best things I've ever written. But it's all Kevin's story, and yeah. without him being willing to open up about, I mean, got to be the worst, most horrible time in his life, which extended for years. You know, it wouldn't be possible. 
Well, I thank both of you guys for uh, taking part in that and doing that because um, otherwise people, it would just be another you know, lost chapter of history, really. Yeah. Yep. And uh, for those who don't know, Nichols is still alive. Um, since we didn't you know, mention that, he's life in prison, it looks like. The article is exclusive, a former DEA agent's showing firsthand account of the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, and it's up on thenewsrep.com. If you're not already a member, become a member because you're going to get great stuff like that on a regular basis. Uh, thanks, as always, for coming on, at Lefave Joseph on Twitter. Always appreciate it, Joe. And we'll have you back on because, like I said, I know you're writing stuff about Venezuela and the cruise ship stuff, and uh, we've gone pretty long here, so we'll talk about yeah. that at another point. Okay. Yeah, I, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's always a blast, um, you know, just shooting the shit with you guys. So. Yeah, anytime, Joe. Really enjoyed that discussion with Joe. As you heard me say, the um, Oklahoma City bombing has always been just a subject of interest to me. Um, you know, how the the psychology of what makes someone do that, the background of uh, Tim McVeigh. And uh, and it, it's also kind of crazy because he started off as a very regular guy with you know libertarian-minded military veteran and just went way off the reservation. Um, so it's it's great for me to learn new information. At first, when I saw that Joe put out this article, I figured it must be stuff that I've heard before. But I and I don't think many in general, other, other than his probably personal friends, have heard that story from Kevin Waters. Um, with that, as I said earlier in this show, be sure to check out Create Club. It's a club for men, by men, of gear handpicked by special operations military veterans. We have the Dash One Crate, the Pro Crate, and for those looking for the holy grail of gear subscriptions, our Premium Crate. These are all available at CrateClub.us, and right now we are running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off for all SoftRep Radio listeners. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion live. So get on it right now. That's CrateClub.us, coupon code SOFREP for 20% off any gearbox. Sign up today. Also, as a reminder for those who are listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, if you're not already signed up at the News Rep, you've got to get on board. Expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard on here, like Joe LaFave, and also the many guest writers who pop up as well. Unlimited access to News Rep on any device. Unlimited access to the app. Join the War Room community. Invitations to our exclusive events, and it's all ad-free for members. We have a trial offer up right now where you can get four weeks for only $1.99. Really can't beat that. Sign up now at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. And by the way, for those not in the know, we have our own SoftRep Radio app that you can download for free on iPhone or Android. And our homepage is softrepradio.com where you can see our full archive of shows. 
And as always, keep up with us at SoftRep Radio as well. And looking behind me here, we have the first copies of Jack Murphy's Murphy's Law on uh, hardcover, which is what you're going to get if you pre-ordered. And I was saying to Jack, man, like the spine of this book really stands out. I think it'll stand out on the shelves. I've just started reading it. It's a great read. Jack's a great writer. You guys know that. Uh, and that's it. That's it for this week of shows. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You could follow Jack on Twitter at Jack Murphy RGR. And you could follow me. Give me a follow on Twitter at Ian Scotto, Facebook.com slash Ian Scotto Radio. Love to hear your feedback and what you guys like about the show. And uh, yep, stay in touch. We always stay interactive here at South Rep Radio. And uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.